You have been listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church. We invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For more information, visit day3church.com. We're doing a series uh, that's called Real Marriage. And um, to kind of just get the topic, you know, right out in front of us this day, I'm going to say one word to start it off. Sex. Now, some of you may not have ever heard that word said in church. And, and I'm not saying it trying to be offensive. Because it's a topic, since we're talking about marriage, that we need to talk about because the Bible talks about it. it it's something that we don't need to shy away from. Uh, we did give a disclaimer in the updates. And uh, I announced earlier when I was making announcements that if you had small children, probably good Sunday you know, for them to be in, uh, in, in class with the, uh, with the other kiddos instead of in here. <clears throat> but uh, at the same time, depending on how old your child is, you'll see in some stats later on in the message just maybe why they need to hear us talk about it and they need to hear you talk about it as parents. See, the reality is whether we want to admit it or not, our culture bombards us and bombarding our children and our teenagers with sex all the time. They're going to hear it one way or the other. So we can either try and tell them the right way from the Bible and tell them in our homes or at church, or they'll hear it at school and they'll hear it online and they'll hear it in the movies and they'll even be confronted with it with like the sizzling jalapeno burger on TV, you know? Some of you act like you've not even seen that thing. I mean, they'll use sex to try and sell anything anymore. You know, and, and they're trying to make you want to go eat this hamburger, and, and they're calling it the sizzling jalapeno, you know, cheeseburger, whatever it is. I, I'm, I'm just telling you, I don't think too many guys are looking at the hamburger during that advertisement, you know? And, and that just gives you an idea how our culture tries to take something that God created for a good reason and pervert it into something that's completely wrong. And that's why we don't need to shy away from talking about it at church. Now, someone may still be questioning that. They may be saying, well, why, you know, why do we need to talk about sex? I'll let that question bake just for a second. And then, kind of, really, do I need to explain why we need to talk about it? I mean, honestly. There are several reasons why we need to talk about it, I'll give you, before we actually get into the message. One is this, God talks about it, in fact, God created it. Do you understand that? Because the way God made men and women, God created it. It's His concept, it's not something we came up with. And He talks about it in the Bible, so we ought to talk about it. Second reason why we ought to talk about it is this. It's a problem in many marriages, in anything that people are struggling with in their relationships, we ought to be willing to talk about it at church and try and help them. Third reason why we ought to deal with it is this. Uh, it distinguishes this, this part of marriage, the aspect of sex distinguishes the relationship of marriage from, from all other relationships. You understand that? I mean, you know, sex between a husband and wife distinguishes that relationship from your golf buddies, from your fishing pals, from your hunting buddies. It's a good thing, huh, that it does. So it's kind of a distinguishing factor. Another reason why we ought to talk about it is some people make too much of it in our culture. Another reason we ought to talk about it in church is some people make too little of it. And fail to realize that God created it to be used in marriage in a special gift. So there's all kinds of reasons why we ought to talk about it. We ought to talk about it also because the church, regrettably, many times is considered this topic to be like, you know, off limits or taboo. And we shouldn't even, you know, deal with it whatsoever. And the truth of the matter is, God talks about it. So just maybe we're in a lot of the trouble we're in in our culture because we fail to talk about it from the Word of God. So those are just some reasons why we ought to talk about it. main part of the message today, we're going to talk about three kind of viewpoints. 
We're going to talk about how some people view sex as though it is their God. They focus on it. They worship it. Some people uh, go the other extreme. They look at sex as though it's gross or ungodly in some way and, and as though you, you know, shouldn't talk about it or you know, almost be apologetic for even practicing it, even in the marriage relationship. And then the third thing we're going to talk about is how it is actually a gift designed by God for a man and a woman who are married to each other. Guys, I'm going to use really specific language today because I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea. It's for a man and a woman who are married to each other to practice as a gift from God. Anything outside of that, the Bible says, is wrong. The Bible says it's a sin. Anything beyond that realm. But before we hit those three main things I want us to talk about, and you don't have any fill in the blanks, you can kind of rest your pen, you know, uh, hand for a moment. I, I want to kind of set a little bit more of a background of what we're talking about. Because a, a foundational big picture that you need to understand is, is really this. In the beginning, you know, when we look in the Genesis account and we look at God created Adam and, and God created Eve, in, in the very beginning you need to realize that, that sex was not portrayed in a way that there was anything wrong with it. We somehow culturally have equated sex to having something to do with the original sin, but it did not. And that's why I want you to understand that kind of as a background point, and that is simply this. There was nakedness and sex before sin entered into the world, so that means that the nakedness and the sex by itself is not sinful. Do you understand that from the Bible standpoint? Look at this account in, uh, in Genesis chapter 2. You know, kind of the first wedding, you know, uh, really gives an account, I think, of, of, of the first probably sexual encounter and everything. But the Bible says this, and I'll probably stop and talk about it some as we read but the Bible says, then the Lord God said, it's, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock, birds of heaven, beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So hold on to, to those verses a minute. We'll keep them on the screen. Let me talk about that. Uh, just for a second. Put, put yourself in, in Adam's place for a moment. And God comes and tells you that it's not good for you to be alone, so he's going to make you a wife. And, and really, I'm just kind of ab-libbing to the, to the biblical account, but really, more or less, I, I think Adam probably said, I second the motion. You know, don't know what one looks like or anything else. But I agree with you, God. I, I, I need one. But then before God creates Eve, he brings Adam over here, to let him see all these other created, you know, beings that he made, all the animals, and, and, and named them. So, you know, Adam had just said, you know, or God had just told Adam, well, you know, it's not good for you to be alone. You need a wife. I, I'm going to make a helper for you. And then God brings him over here and introduces him to goats and aardvarks and things like that. Maybe Adam is kind of thinking to himself, God, this isn't what you're talking about, is it? You know? And it wasn't. God said no. But Adam has a really big day because he names all these animals, and then we read on in the story and we see what happens. Next, next slide, please. For Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that he had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So he's named all these animals and everything. Man, that's a big task, big day. And now God makes Eve and brings Eve to Adam. And you've got the, the first marriage ceremony. God as the creator and almost like the you know, father of the bride too brings her. And ladies, it's not just a big day for Adam, everything that he's experienced. It's a big day for the women because guess what? That's when you had your beginning. That's when you were made. Put yourself in these shoes for a minute. She's made, she meets Adam, and she's married all at the same time. That's a big day, isn't it? You know, you're playing your weddings for months and months and months. Hey, met him, married him, same day. By the way, you want me to throw something else in? They were naked when they were married. I'm not trying to be coy. I'm telling you the truth. They were naked. 
Because they didn't try and stitch any fig leaves or clothing or anything like that till after they had disobeyed God in sin. So what I'm pointing out to you, there's no shame or sin just attached to nakedness. God made that human body. Let's read on. Adam says this, and more or less when you look at it in the, in the Hebrew, it's in poetic form, so it's really like Adam sings this to Eve. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And that one flesh concept is more than them just being married. It, it, it's talking about the physical union. It's like the consummation of the marriage taking place. And it goes on and said, the man and his wife were both what? You're scared to say the word. Naked. I, we got a lot of new people today. I'm sorry, guys. I'm not normally like this, but it's the topic we're dealing with. So, you know, give us a second chance. Don't come up and show up at day three today and say, all they talked about was sex, and I'm never coming back there again. They were both naked, and they were what? Not ashamed. So that's the foundational thing I want to lay out for you before we you know, jump out into the rest of this series. You need to realize that. There's, there's not, the, the nakedness by itself is not sinful. The, this consummation of the marriage where they became, they became one. Sex is not sinful. They were not ashamed. So I want to give you about seven things out of that before we really get in the main part of the message. Just seven things real quickly. Number one, we've talked about this all through this series. God made male and female, and he gave dignity and value to both, although they have different roles. That's one thing you can gain from this story. Number two is this. Love is more a song than a mathematical equation. And you might be wondering, why am I saying that? Here's why, because some of you guys might be statisticians or you know, mathematicians or whatever, or you run a business and you're all the time about the figures and equations and, and you try and translate that over into your marriage relationship. doesn't work like that, guys. It's more like a song. The ladies can tell you that. They, they want you to kind of, the relationship be like you're singing a song to them instead of you're figuring out a mathematical equation. I'm not saying they want to hear you sing. You might not be able to sing like John, okay? But you need to understand what, it, what it's meant to be. Number three, marriage is for one man and one woman by God's design. Hear me and listen closely on this. Marriage is for one man and one woman by God's design. I don't care what the vote says. You hearing me? There's actually a vote that's coming up in our state about marriage, a resolution on marriage. My opinion is you ought to vote to support it because God supports it. And I don't get up here being political, you know, Republican, Democrat, and stuff like that. That's not what I'm doing. We're talking moral values. That's God's moral value. So marriage is one man and one woman married to each other. I don't care what the vote says or what the culture says. And, you know, if you're a Christian, you ought to say amen to that. Because it's God's will that's more important. The only vote that counts, you know what? The only vote that counts is God's vote. <laughs> that's the only vote that counts is His vote. Number four, God created our bodies with a design and capacity for sexual pleasure. And if you'll read in the creation account, God, you know, all the animals are created and everything else, and He's standing back looking at creation, and He said, that's good, that's good, that's good. He created man, and He said, that's very good. And I want to remind you, when he created man, he made man like we are. He made the male like he made the male, the female like he made the female. And then God stands back and he says, it's very good. He didn't say that's sick, that's nasty, that's gross, that's disgusting, that's ungodly. God didn't say that. He looked at man and woman when he made them, and he said it's very good. And he built us with a capacity for it to be pleasurable. Number five. All sex outside of heterosexual marriage is a sin, according to the Bible. That's worth reading again. All sex, whether it's premarital or extramarital, 
Or somehow come up with, well, well what about this? What about, I, I tell you, what about this? What about this is what God says. You know, it, you, people come up with all kinds of excuses, but what if I feel like I was made this way? I, I'm sorry, go argue with God about it. God made you a male. God made you a female. You know, I, I think people are perverted by our culture, the way they view things and stuff like that. God did not make a mistake when he made you. If he made you a male, he made you a male. If he made you a female, he made you a female. And all sex outside of heterosexual marriage, whatever it is, according to God, is a sin. Number six, sex is to be without shame. We saw that in the story. They were both naked and they were not ashamed. Number seven, and here's one I want to camp out on just for a moment. Because uh, I don't think I'd ever picked up on this much myself or thought about it until I was reading in Mark Grisco's book this week. But he points this out. Your standard of beauty is your spouse. And, and he draws that from the creation account. I mean, when, when he was going to make Eve, make the helper, make the wife for Adam, he didn't come to Adam and say, do you like a blonde? Do you like a redhead? Do you like Asian? You know, do you like short? Do you like tall? Do you like skinny? Do you like voluptuous? He didn't do that. I mean, more or less, God did this. God said, Ardvark or Eve? And I think Adam, you know, saying, hey, Eve looks really, really good. You know? But, but think about it in, in, in these terms. Your standard of beauty should be your spouse. The standard of beauty for Eve was Adam. There wasn't any other choices. There wasn't some cultural image, icon, that had been thrown out there for people to gravitate toward and say, oh, this is what beauty looks like. The, the standard of beauty for Adam was Eve. You see, it's our culture that's perverted that. Because through, you know, the, the Playboy retouch photographs and, you know, pornography online or, you know, the advertisements for the Hardy's Burgers or, or whatever it is, you've got all these images out here, you know, the models walking on, on the, on, you know, modeling the, the new styles and everything like that. You've got all this imagery being thrown out to us to where we're supposed to think that's a standard of beauty. No, look at the biblical account. The standard of beauty is your spouse. And if you married your spouse, you ought to be into your spouse. That ought to be your standard of beauty. And so I'll say, well, what if that changes over time? Guess what? We change over time, you know? Ladies have babies, and sometimes the pounds won't go off. Guys, you know, lose their hair and everything else. We change over time. But the point is this. The standard of beauty is your spouse, however they are, whoever they are, in that moment in time, that's your standard of beauty. That's who you're to be enamored with. Instead of allowing the culture to sell you a bill of goods that is not realistic anyway, that's just lying to you. You see, the, the bill of goods that culture sends us with all of these images, Jesus calls adultery in your heart. If you look upon a woman and lust after you've done what? You've committed adultery in your heart already. So the standard of beauty ought to be the spouse that God's given you. Now, that's just background stuff. We'll get into the main part of the message. We'll look at three, uh, three positions. Uh, I, I probably shouldn't say it like that. Three, three perspectives. <laughs> three, three, three perspectives of of sex and marriage. You know, last last week I had all the trash bags up here giving you imagery. No imagery this this week, guys. No, 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 no real life examples. I'm sorry. Here's the first view. Some people view sex as though it's their God. So what we need to realize is this. Sex is not to be worshipped as God. We're not to elevate it to the place of an idol in our lives. We're not to, we're not to worship sex as though that's what our lives are all about. We're not supposed to build our lives in our very being, in our identity, in things like that based upon sex. And people will do that. They'll, they'll build their identity based upon sex. Or, you know, they'll build their life around it. And they'll allow it to become like the most important thing in their life. Like it's what they're worshiping. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 tells us this. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I, I, I don't know if you realize this or not. 
But worship is not just when you come in here and sit down. Matter of fact, when we finish this series, we're going to do a three-part series where I do a message, Daryl does one, and John does one, all about worship. Because sometimes we get the viewpoint that when you come in here and sit down, the band plays, that's worship. That can be part of worship or an aspect of worship, but based upon what the Bible says here, we're to offer our bodies as a spiritual act of worship to God. So what we do in our body should be worship to God. How, how we use our bodies before God should be worship to Him. And if we are perverting it and doing it in the wrong way, then, then in essence, we're, we're, instead of worshiping God, we can wind up worshiping sex like it's an idol. We ought to be presenting our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. A, a lot of cultic religions and things like that down through history have keyed in on the fact that sex is a lot more than just physical. It has a deep spiritual aspect to it. And it was even used in forms of worship because there were you know, ungodly cults in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament too in some of the cultures there to where they had like prostitutes as you know, a priestess or, or a priest down at the temple and they would go worship by including sex as part of their worship. That shows how, how emotional it is, how much it speaks not just to the physical part of your life but even to the spiritual part of your life. And if you are elevating sex in the place of God, more or less what happens is that you've boiled it down into, into idolatry. Some of the excuses that people might be, you know, the excuses, I, I try and bring those up sometimes when I think of excuses people may be bringing to bear in their mind right now. You know, some of you that are single, you might be thinking, well, Pastor, you're just old-fashioned. You're just an old fogey. Everybody's doing it today and, uh, and all. If everybody jumped off a cliff, you're going to jump off a cliff, you know? If God's got a sign saying, don't jump off the cliff, this is going to kill you. And some of you are going to say, well, we love each other, or we think we'll probably wind up getting married. All kinds of excuses we can come up with. We, we, we love each other. We care about each other. We're not hurting anybody. We're consenting adults. It doesn't matter, you know, what we do as long as we're not hurting anybody else. All those are excuses that people will come up with in their mind to justify not having the proper relationship in their, in, their, in their sex life before God. Well, see, here's the answer, really God's answer, to all those types of excuses. And I don't think I'd ever really boiled it down to, to, what it, it, to, to think about it like this myself until I was studying for this message. If you strip all of it back and get down to what the, the foundational issue is, you know what the foundational issue is? Idolatry. Because if you are allowing your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your computer, if you're putting those things before the will of God in your life, you know God says don't do it, but you're doing it anyway. In essence, you've got an idolatry problem because you're taking those things and you're giving those things more prominence in your life than you're giving to God's will. And that's a form of idolatry. We, we tend to think of idolatry as just being... You know, someone, you know, put in a, a, a little uh, statue up on their mantle and everything like that and bound down to it and worshiping that idol. I want you, let, me, let me give you a New Testament passage and show you the reason why I'm saying it's idolatry. See, God's answer to all of our excuses about why we ought to be able to have sex outside of marriage and everything else is that we're really violating His will and, and causes us to worship sex as an idol. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 7 and 8. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. And he's talking back in the Old Testament. And the children of Israel, they were kind of waiting around on Moses to appear. And he didn't get back as soon as they thought that he ought to. So they kind of decided they were going to throw a party. As it is written, the people sat down to eat, drink, and they rose to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality. That's the play he's talking about. As some of them did. And I want you to notice this. And 23,000 fell in a single day. That's a big funeral, isn't it? See, here's what happened. Moses ain't showing up, so we're going to have a party, and then it led from a party into an orgy, for lack of a better term. And they were more or less letting their desires be their idol. And the Bible tells us that we're not to be idolaters like some of those were. So if, if we allow sex 
in our desire and our drive for sex to be unbiblical and, and, and put it in God's place in place of His will for our lives, more or less what we're doing is committing idolatry. See, it might be a new concept for you because sometimes we just think of idolatry, as I said earlier. You've got a little statue in your home of gold or wood or silver or whatever it is, and you're bound down before it and worshiping it. And we think of that in terms of, oh, these poor people out in foreign lands that are involved in heathen worship and they're worshiping idols and things like that. You know what some of them might think if they come into our homes? They might think, I don't see any difference. You see, our idols sometimes just plug into the wall. The computer can be an idol. What you watch on the television can be an idol. And if we're not careful, we'll start worshiping sex instead of worshiping our Creator. See, the issue is this, guys. We're made to worship. God built in our hearts the desire to worship. You will worship. The question is, what are you going to worship or who are you going to worship? All of us are worshipers in some way. But if we're not careful, we'll allow ourselves to think like sex ought to be our God. Turn, turn with me to Romans 1 for a minute. And uh, I, you know, maybe put your seatbelt on. Uh, kind of it's a little bit hard scripture. But you know what I found out? God uses hard scripture to give us tender hearts. And if we don't allow the hard scripture to be applied to our lives, we wind up having hard hearts instead. So, and that's why I told you to turn your Bibles. It'll be on the screen if you don't have your Bible, but please remember to bring your Bibles with you, you know. I've threatened before I may do it one Sunday, I may put Shakespeare on the screen. You think, oh, that's a new passage I've never heard before. <laughs> bring your Bible and you'll know if I put Shakespeare on the screen. Amen? Look at verse 24. <clears throat> Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, you know, if you think about the downward plight of mankind, we were in a great relationship with God, and then because of sin, mankind starts going downhill, even to where we're worshiping animals and bugs and stuff like that. And that's the way we tend to apply that passage of Scripture. But with what he says in the next verse, that might very well be a misapplication of Scripture because you realize our bodies are also something God created. So if we're not careful, we will be worshiping ourselves, our bodies, because we're the created too, and sex that goes along with our bodies instead of worshiping the Creator. Now, Now keep reading with me. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. A dishonorable passion is something wrong, right? For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Right there, if you don't think you can find it anywhere else, I want to show you right there, God says lesbianism is wrong. It's a sin. For a woman to sexually be with a woman. Keep reading. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Right there, God clearly says that homosexuality is wrong, that it's a sin. It even talks about if you practice it, Something might happen. There's dangers. There's results to it that can happen in your lives. The due penalty of their error. Now, I want to stop for a minute because I don't want anyone to think. Because I, I did a whole message a couple years ago about whether homosexuality is a sin. Yes, it is. So is lying. So is stealing. So is adultery. So it is a sin like other sins are sins. The problem the church has had in pulling it out and making it like it's a sin to itself. So we don't do that around here, you know. It is a sin. But at the same time, we are going to tell people the truth around here. You can tell people it's a sin without acting like you hate their guts. You understand that? The truth of the matter is, it is a sin. Lesbianism is a sin. 
homosexuality is a sin. The Bible clearly said that right there. And it attaches it to a passage that talks about people worshiping the creature more than the creator. So a base issue, problem that we need to recognize that people have when they get their sex life all out of kilters and they're making sex to be their God is that it is idolatry in their lives. Foundationally, where they're allowing what they want to be more important than what God says is right in their lives. It's a perversion of the truth. The truth is God made us, and there's not anything probably that He ever made, maybe, you know, that I know of that's more magnificent than the human body. When you think about the cells and everything else and the, and the intricacy of how God put our bodies together, how, how He created us, like I said, He made all creation and said it's good. He made us and said it's very good. So it's really easy because of that for us to get enamored with it, you know, and, and, and for us to get it out of, out of line and, and allow it to become like it's a God in our lives. But you see, the problem with doing it is that it perverts truth in a lot of ways. I, I want to make one statement before I jump into some stats that I want to be sure everyone gets. If these are some of your sins that I've been talking about, and I'm not trying to make anybody feel uncomfortable, but these are some of your sins, sexual sins that, that we've been talking about, things like homosexuality or lesbianism or bisexuality or fornication or adultery or pornography or even bestiality. Guys, you know, a lot, a lot of craziness in our world. All of those are perversions of the truth. But what you need to understand is, is this. We're not, our goal is not trying to get you to stop sinning sexually. Our goal is to get you to worship Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, and if you worship Jesus, that will affect how you practice sex in your life. You see the difference? <clears throat> Here's the kind of culture we live in. Here's the problem of living in a culture to where to where sex is being viewed almost like it's our God. I want you to look at these statistics we're going to bring up. Right there, okay? Annual pornography revenues worldwide are more than $90 billion. In the United States, and these stats are six years old, so it's probably worse now. But in the United States, pornography revenues were $13 billion. The last stats we have six years ago. Now, for you to put that in perspective, according to the information that, that, that I read, that's more than the combined revenues of pro baseball, basketball, and football combined. People are spending more money in America on pornography than all of those sports combined. It's more than the combined revenues of ABC, CBS, and NBC combined. Does that give you an idea of the problem, the magnitude of the problem we have in our nation? Look at the next stat. Porn sites account for 12% of all Internet sites. Every day, 2.5 million pornographic emails are sent. 90% of children, I want you to notice these ages. 90% of children ages 8 to 16 have viewed porn online. The average age of the first porn internet observation is 11. The number one consumer of online pornography is 12 to 16-year-old boys. And I'm not trying to make, guys, I'm not trying to make any of you feel uncomfortable. I know that's a huge problem for people. Can I give you a little suggestion? We talked about it in our men's group and the study we're doing on Sunday nights on Real Marriage you know, one thing that might help you in the way you view that, what if that was your daughter? If you're a dad, that ought to really change the way you view that. Youth with significant exposure to sexuality in media are consistently more likely to have intercourse before the age of 14. The average person today has sex for the first time at age 16. 57% of pastors say that porn addiction is the most damaging issue to their congregations. 
one-third of evangelical pastors have a porn problem. So that means if you were going for counseling, one-third of the churches you might stop at, you know, someone might be sitting there saying, I don't really know how to help you because I'm clicking on the same sites you're clicking on. And the problem is it also leads to this. Next slide. Oh, well, let me cover this one, then we'll get to the next one. Guess what the number one day of the week is for, for porn activity online? How'd you know that? <laughs> now, the tragedy of that is this. The day that we ought to be worshiping Jesus... We all worship Him every day, but the day we think about worshiping Him more than any day when we come together to church, what's being worshipped in our nation more than Jesus is porn on Sunday. And it leads to things like this. Look at the next slide. One in four women and one in six men have been sexually assaulted. When you have sex as God in a culture, you have things happen like sexual slavery. You wonder why the children are disappearing? There's a black market for children to be sold across this world as sex slaves. The tragedies that we hear about in our news, some little girl or little boy being abducted so some pervert can have a moment of satisfaction for himself at the expense of that life and then killing that little child and burying it. All those things are results of us living in a culture to where we've made it sound like sex is God. And that's the wrong view. And if that's your view, what you ought to do is repent. Because sex isn't God. Second view is also a wrong view, but we're going to talk about it anyway. Sex is not to be wrongly designated as gross or ungodly. Another wrong view, uh, kind of falling off the wagon on the other side. An overreaction maybe that church and Christianity has is that we'll wind up, because of trying to be holy, we'll wind up making it sound like that there's something wrong with sex, that sex is gross or sex is sinful or sex is ungodly in some way. Because we see all the perversions of it and all the wrong focus in it and see it practiced all the wrong way, then, then we'll overreact. See, in our culture... Our culture makes sex out to be God. Churches tend to make sex out to be ungodly. And it is not ungodly because God created it. Now this mindset, they think, started maybe back with some Greek philosophy. You know, guys like Aristotle and Socrates and Plato. There's a concept called dualism. And dualism basically says this. What is spiritual is good. What is physical is bad. Now, the problem with dualism as a philosophy in the church is this. Jesus became what? Flesh. So if what is physical is bad and what is spiritual is good, then you'd have to say Jesus coming in the flesh is bad. I thank God He came in the flesh because without that I would have no hope and neither would you. There are even doctrines in the New Testament that's addressing the fact of where some people believe, oh, Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. Instead, Jesus just came as a spirit. But his disciples said, no, we touched him. We, we held him. We, we know that he was real. But that's where maybe that mentality started. If the spiritual is good and the physical is bad, then the mentality is, well, then sex must be bad. And that's kind of what got adopted in the church. And it dominates some of the early church fathers' instruction. Matter of fact, these two guys. Have you ever heard of these two guys? Next slide. Have you ever heard of these two guys, Tertullian and Ambrose? Early church fathers, really important. You know, helped develop a lot of doctrinal things and stuff like that. Really important church leaders in the first century. But they were asked one time if they preferred intercourse between husbands and wives or the extinction of the human race. And here's what they said. We would rather have the extinction of the human race. In other words, rather than have a married man and a married woman having sex together, they said we'd rather the race stop existing than to have that happen. And that type of mentality invaded church in church mindset when it comes to sex. 
And it still happens in our culture today because in an effort to be conservative churches. Can I, can I tell you what a conservative church is? A conservative church is a church that believes what the Bible really says and not what we think it says and not make up man-made rules to go along with. That's a conservative church. Our problem is, in an effort to try and be, be really holy and really conservative, we add our man-made rules to it and we try and look at sex as though there's something wrong with it. We look at it as though it is sinful in some way, as though there's something wrong with it and we should not practice it. That's the mentality that the church has taken many times. You know what a, a problem with that is? I read one earlier uh, to you because it said they were both naked and they were unashamed. You ever heard of the Song of Solomon? How many know the Song of Solomon is part of the Bible? How many has ever heard a sermon out of the Song of Solomon? Okay, hold your hands up higher. If you ever heard a sermon, look, look around. Look how many have never heard a sermon out of the Song of Solomon. See, that proves the point that I'm trying to make because we've been, you know, so twisted and falling off the wagon the wrong way trying to make it sound like sex is wrong. The church has even been afraid to read the Song of Solomon. And then we'll take it and make it sound like it's only about Jesus and the church. It is a type or a picture of Jesus and the church. But originally, in, in, the, in the Jewish beliefs, it was about a man and a woman. It was about Solomon as a king of Israel and a woman that he is going to marry to. And it has all types of intimate language in it. But we try and avoid it because we think, well, surely God wouldn't let them talk like that. Yes, he did. It's in his Bible. It's in his word. In the Song of Solomon is as true as any other book in the Bible. All scripture is God breathed and it's profitable. It's there for a reason. You can't rip it out and say we don't want to read the Song of Solomon because it's too sexy sounding. It's part of the Word of God. And we ought to deal with it and read the Word of God. So, the flip side of it is this. Number one, if you view sex as God, that's a wrong perspective. If you view sex as gross or ungodly, that's a wrong perspective. That's the wrong view. So what's the, the right view? By the way, before I, before I get the right view, I, I'm about to pass over something I, I do want to be sure I mention. There, there may be some of you, and I'm not trying to make anybody feel uncomfortable, but there may be someone here, some of you, that view sex as gross or ungodly because you were abused. as a child or whatever. You know, that happened to you. I'm deeply sorry. But at the same time, what happened to you is someone being sinful about sex. It was someone who was allowing sex to be God in their life, forcing themselves upon you. It does not make sex to be wrong because God created it. I'm sorry that you're hurt. You need to ask God to help you forgive and work through it and move on in your life. But don't allow something the devil did in your life to cause you to view something that God wants to be beautiful in your life in a marriage relationship to be less than that. Okay? So let's look at the last thing. What is the right viewpoint of sex? Sex is to be enjoyed as a gift from God. I'm going to be real technical again. Be sure someone hears what I'm saying. It is a gift from God to be enjoyed as a gift from God by a man and a woman who are married to each other. That's what the Bible says. Amen? I, I'm not saying, you know, that's always been your reality because we're human and we make mistakes. But as, as Christians, guys, our view has to be God's view. And God's view is this. Sex is to be enjoyed as a gift from God by a man and a woman who are married to each other. That's the right perspective that we need to have. It isn't God. That's the wrong view. It isn't gross. That's the wrong view. Maybe evaluate in your mind where you are. If you have allowed sex to be God in your life, then, then repent of it and ask God to help you with that issue. If you've, if you've looked down on it and you've allowed it to be like it's wrong or, or gross and you've allowed it to maybe even hurt your marriage, then, then ask God to help you with that too because that's the wrong view. Sex is not ungodly for a married couple to practice. The correct view is this last one that we're going to 
deal with, and that is that it is a gift by God to a man and woman who are married together, married to each other. In, in his book, Mark pointed out six things. I'm going to give you seven because I think there's one that needed to be stressed that he did not list. But I think the Bible gives us seven ways in which sex is a gift. Now, once again, if someone's still wrestling with why I'm talking about this, and you're saying, you know, is this really proper? Do we really need to talk about it? I want you to think back to those statistics I just showed you. And I'm afraid a lot of that's happened because we have not talked about it at church. When we should have talked about it because it's in the Bible. Some of you that are thinking, you know, when... Well, when is it that, that I need to talk to my son or my daughter about sex? Probably a couple of years ago, and you've done missed the date. Because you're better to be on the front end than on the back end of it. So seven ways the Bible tells us that, that sex is a gift from God. Number one, sex and marriage is for pleasure. That's not all that it's about, but it is for pleasure. I want to remind you, God made us, right? That's what the Bible says. God made the man, God made the woman. He made us the way He made us. If God had so chosen, instead of us having sex to, to have kids, God could have made us like some of the rest of His creation. He could have made us to where we pollinate. I mean, He could have. He's God. You know what pollinate is, is dust flies off a flower and it lands on another flower and that, you know, and the fertility takes place and everything like that. God could have done it like that. God, you know, some of you ladies think we're dirty anyway all the time, got dust on us. God could have made it where the dust blows off of us and lands on you and poof, you have a baby. God could have made us where we pollinate without there being any intimate connection at all. I mean, you wouldn't even have to be, you know, in the close vicinity. The wind just, you know, blow the, the pollen over there, and, and then, then she has a baby. God's God, and He could have chose to do it that way. But that is not the way God chose to do it. God made the man and the woman the way He made the man and the woman. Even a little bit more technical on it. God, God if it were only for procreation, it's only, if, if sex were only, only to have kids... I'm not trying to be coy, guys, I'm not. But I'm just trying to be honest. I don't know any better way to say it than this. God didn't have to make it feel good. God did not have to put certain nerve endings, you know, in places in the, in the man and the woman both. There, there, there are places on a woman that have nothing to do with her having a baby, have nothing to do with procreation. It's there for pleasure and pleasure alone. And God's the one that created her body. And God's the one that created the man's body. And God gave it to be practiced as a pleasurable thing that a man and a woman who are married together can enjoy. And see, if you can, if you can wrap your mind around that, you can get away from it being something that's, that's dirty, you know. I mean, we've got the mentality a lot of times, like I said, in our culture and church, you know, sex is dirty, it's nasty, it's gross. You're only supposed to practice it with the one that you love. Listen, if it's really dirty, gross, and nasty, why are you saving it for the one that you love? I don't like you, so I'll give it to you instead, you know? <laughs> See, the point is that it's not dirty and nasty and gross. If it's practiced in the realm that God planned, and that's between a man and a woman who are married together. We're so, so, we're so whacked out in church sometimes about enjoying something that we're afraid if something is pleasurable, it must be wrong. And that's why we'll come to church and we'll sit down and we'll look like our best friend died and we'll go to the ball game and do the wave. Pleasure can lead you to a sinful place. But you know what else it can do? The right type of pleasure ought to lead us to worship God and thank God for what He's given us. Sex and marriage is about pleasure in God. Back up, I'm going to read the verse about pleasure. I'm sorry, man. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy at your right hand or pleasures forevermore. God, it's not a bad thing for God to allow us to experience pleasure. If it's the pleasure that God desired for us, it's not bad. You understand? 
Number two, sex and marriage is for procreation. Like I said, that's not all that it is, but it is for procreation. He, the Bible tells us in Genesis, God blessed them, talking about Adam and Eve, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and, and, and fill the earth. I mean, God told them, more or less, they're, they're to have sex. See, we, I, I don't know, God. I don't think God made Adam and Eve and married and put them together and then went off over here to a coffee shop to have mocha, and then God comes back and He says, What are they doing? That's gross. What, what do they think? God knew it would happen. God planned it to happen. God designed them that way. And he told them to do it, to be fruitful, to multiply. It's not all about procreation, but I am glad it's about procreation because I love my kids. You got kids? You love your kids? I thank God for my children. I love my kids. I'm glad, you know, that it is about procreation because that's a positive thing too. I love my kids. Love my grandson, you know. My, my kids are older now, so you like my grandson, you know, that I... That's in, in that, you know, mold of, of, of doing some things. I, you know, it's weird for Jerry if I try and pick him up and say, goo goo gaga, you know. He, he's my youngest, 19. It'd be a little bit weird, you know. But I mean, just, you know, Drew, I just get all kinds of, we kept him yesterday. And, and I've been over to see him a couple times on the motorcycle this, you know, this week. Give me a reason to ride it to go over to the house to see my grandson and, and that gives me a, a, a spiritual reason to, you know, be out on a motorcycle to start with. So I, I went to see him, and, and he's now equates motorcycles with his grandpa. For some reason, he would have sat down on it and, uh, and sat down in front of me, and, and I think Jessica was there or something, and he turned, he's looking up grinning, and Jessica said, we need a picture of that. And he wants me to crank it where he can blow the horn, and, you know, he can turn the throttle on it and, and everything like that, and, and all while I'm sitting there. And uh, I got up, and we just let him sit there for a minute. And, uh, you know, I, I took the key out, and he's starting trying to blow the horn. Wouldn't blow the end. I said, well, look, I've got the key. He's not two yet, okay? But he's watching things close enough. He starts climbing across the tank, and he looks where the key goes in. Yesterday, they were at our house, and uh, Matt took him outside, and he likes to sit and act like he's driving the car. Matt gave him the key to their car and, uh, and, and shows him how to even push the button where the key comes out, one of these new keys. And he's doing that, and he's looking up there, and he's finding a place to put the key and push the key in. He's not two yet. I told Matt he's going to have to quit doing that. It's going to make national news. A six-year-old's running from the highway patrol. <laughs> but see, I, I, I love kids. I love my grandchildren. I love my kids. And, and it is about procreation, but that's not all that it's about. Third, sex is also about this. Sex and marriage is about intimacy or knowledge. The Bible says that Adam lay with his wife Eve and he knew her. And that does talk about the sexual connection. But guys, the sexual connection is more than just a physical act because there's this, this union of even your emotions and everything that, that take place to where in a very intimate type way, in that moment, you, you're knowing that person in ways you can't know them any other way. So in the marriage relationship, it actually helps you to know your spouse in ways you couldn't know them any other way. Sex is also in marriage about this. Number four, sex in marriage is for fidelity or for faithfulness. The, the Bible says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Do not deprive one another, but by mutual consent for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Not even put all the passage there before this. It, it talks about it's good, you know, to, to marry so you won't be practicing immorality. It's, uh, it, it talks about fulfilling your marital duty to your wife and the marital duty to your husband. Not talking about washing dishes. Washing dishes is fine to do, but that's not what God's talking about here. Because of the context, you can tell what he's talking about. Don't deprive one another. It, it even says before this, you know, when you're married, your body belongs to your spouse. It's what it tells us. Guys, your body belongs to your wife. Wife, your body belongs to your husband once you're married. And then one of the most practical things in the world, don't deprive one another. Don't stay apart sexually is what it's saying unless you do it by mutual consent. You've actually talked about it. It's not a head game. It's not I'm mad at you, so I'm holding back. You've actually talked about it for a spiritual reason so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. 
So he's telling us there that a married couple need to practice sex in their relationship and not to defraud each other or deprive each other unless they've talked about it, they've agreed to do it. It's for a spiritual reason. But then it goes on, and I kind of paraphrase the rest of it. Then it tells you to come back together. And when you read it in the Greek, it really means come back together again quickly. Otherwise, you're going to give the devil an opportunity to do great damage to your marriage. What it really says is, is this. You need to come back together again quickly so you won't give room for temptation to happen in your life. It's what it's talking about. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't justify it. But if the sexual need is not being met in a marriage relationship, it opens the door for someone to look outside of marriage to have that need fulfilled. That is sin. That is wrong. But the need that you have is a need that God built in you, that He wired into you, and there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. What we need to focus on in marriage is the right way to do it. And if we would practice it the way God desires for us to practice it, it would help fidelity in a marriage because you'd be meeting each other's needs and people wouldn't be looking elsewhere. Does that make sense? Practical, guys. It's practical as anything in the Bible. Number five, sex and marriage is for comfort. Got at least one instance of that here in the Bible. You remember the story of David and Bathsheba? He had had a sinful sexual relationship with her. She conceived to cover it up. He had her husband murdered, more or less. They pulled back and allowed him to be killed in battle. That first child that she conceived dies. Now she's mourning and he's mourning. But he's married Bathsheba at this point. Then David comforted his wife because that child was dead and went, in into, went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son and called his name Solomon. Now, the message today is about marriage relationships, but I can't pass this over without talking about grace. Man, if you want a picture of the grace of God, because we've all messed up, haven't we? Amen? David committed adultery with Bathsheba and even led to murder, but Solomon is where the bloodline of Jesus comes through. And if that's not grace, man, I don't know what is. But what I want you to get in context of what our sermon is about, that he went into her and lay with her and they comforted each other. I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be distasteful. I'm not trying to invite you into, into our bedroom or anything like that. But I can tell you there have been times in my life when the world has crapped on me and beat me up and I've been depressed and discouraged and I can find comfort with my wife that I can't find anywhere else. And I thank God for it. It's a gift you ought to be thankful for. Number six, sex and marriage is for oneness. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Yes, that talks about sexual intimacy, but it goes much deeper than that. The word for one here is the same Hebrew word that's used in Deuteronomy when it says the Lord your God is one God. We know he's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The word each had itself in the Hebrew means a collective cluster. It talks about one, but of multiples. You've got one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That same word is used here talking about the man and the wife becoming one. That's how God views it. That's how marriage ought to be for us, to where there's this oneness that exists. As close as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are, we ought to be that bonded with our spouse. Number seven is this. Next slide. Well, now back up. Let me, I, I, I skipped that in the first service too, but I think I want to deal with that. Uh, God gave sex as a gift to bring a couple together. We were just talking about oneness. There, there's a guy by the name of Dr. Stephen Alderburn, and he says this. Sexual pleasure is one of the most intense human experiences, physically speaking, when a man and woman are together. He says that a chemical is released in the brain called an apnoid. And it's, and it's opium-like. It, apart from a, a heroin-induced experience, you know, medical field says there's nothing more physically pleasurable but that's supposed to be bringing that type of pleasure to the husband and the wife to have them to have that degree of oneness. Number seven is this. Sex and marriage should be guiltless. Sex and marriage should be guiltless. 
The man and his wife were both naked and they weren't ashamed. We've already seen that. But Paul, as he writes in, in Hebrews, I believe it was Paul. Some people believe it was someone else. But anyway, the writer of Hebrews says this. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. There's a wrong way and there's a right way. The wrong way is sin before God. The right way, God says the marriage bed is undefiled. There's no reason for you to be ashamed about the sexual relationship you have as a married couple, a husband and a wife joined together before God. It should not be shameful. I know it's a different kind of message. About guarantee, only church in Caldwell County today probably preached a whole message on sex. I realize it's a different kind of message, but as we close, I want you to just evaluate where you are. I want you to evaluate if you're someone that has been viewing sex as God. Because if you've been allowing sex to be your God, to be the driving force in your life, to be kind of what you worship, what you're building your life around, whether it be in illicit sexual relationships or with a computer screen, If sex is being the God of your life and the driving force in your life, you need to repent. On the other end of the spectrum, if if you're someone that has been thinking, man, sex is unholy or it's gross or something wrong with it, it's ungodly, and and, and you've had the wrong view of it because you're, you're, you're concerned about being holy before God and everything like that, and you're thinking, well, you know, sex is something that's, that's not holy before God. It is if it's between a husband and a wife. So if you viewed it as being unholy, you need to repent of that. Mark tells in his book, in, in the chapter that we read this week, in the first part of it, Mark Driska wrote the book Real Marriage that we're basing this series on. He and his wife were speaking uh, somewhere, and they had a 15-minute break, and they were going to try and meet some people and answer a few questions. And man, the line, all of a sudden, zoom, you know, people wanting to talk to them. And, and there was, you know, some couples standing there who had not, uh, they're not being intimate. I, I'm losing the time right now, so I'm not going to give you the exact quote on it. But like, you know, three years or so since a couple had been intimate with each other. That's a problem in a marriage relationship. If that's where you are, you need to repent of that and ask God to help you where you view it as a gift that you're to enjoy as a husband and wife. He had two couples line up in front of him, and their question was this, their issue was this. They had been married a year. Was that not right, what we're talking about? They'd been married a year, two different couples. had been married a year and had not had sex yet. I'm reading that, I think, what's up with that, you know? You know what's up with that? What's up with that is they had grown up in a culture to where it had been made to sound like sex is always wrong. And they were Christians, and they were concerned about honoring God with their bodies, and that's why they had not even practiced it yet, because they had an erroneous view of sex in the marriage relationship. The viewpoint that we need to have is this. Sex is a gift from God. For a man and a woman that are married together. And what we ought to do is worship God because of the gift that He's given us. Let's pray. Father, God, to begin with this morning, Lord, I... God, I want to pray for anyone here that may have been abused sexually in their life. Father, I pray right now that they would that they would ask you to help bring healing into their life and forgiveness into their life. Father, I pray for anyone here that maybe it wasn't a physical sexual abuse, but anyone here that maybe was introduced to pornography, God, at an early age. And because somebody did that to them, they've wrestled with it. And it's affected their thinking about the sexual relationship all their life. 
Father, I pray for someone that's struggling in that way. God, if there's someone here that's allowing their sexual desire to dictate their identity, who they are. God, if there's anyone here who's allowing it to be like their God and they're building their life around it and they're, they're placing sex or their desire ahead of what your will is. They're allowing it to be an idol in their lives. Father, I, I pray you help them right now to turn loose of that mindset, to turn loose of that idol and put Jesus first in their life. Father, the answer to all of this stuff we've talked about, the, the answer to, to sexual perversion, the answer to it being viewed wrongly, the, the answer to it being like an idol in someone's life, the answer is just Jesus. So, Father, I, I pray you help people to look to Jesus right now. God, for any here that's, that's maybe struggling in their marriage relationship because they've, they've had the wrong view of sex, they've thought of it as something ungodly and not realized that you gave it to them as a couple, as a gift. Father, I pray. God, I pray that you just bring restoration in that relationship. Father, I thank you for the gift that you've given us. Thank you for the, for the spouse that you've given to these of us that are here and married. God, I pray you help us to view our spouse as, as our standard of beauty. God, I pray you help us to, to understand that you made us the way we made, that we're made. And God, you've given us the desires that we have, and there's a good way and a godly way for it to be practiced within marriage. So, Father, help couples to actually allow that to help them worship you. Father, most of all, we thank you for Jesus. That you loved us, that he came, that he came in the flesh, that he died on the cross, sinless for our sins, that through him we might have everlasting life. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I know today the, the message has been primarily uh, for married couples or for provision. You are listening to Sermon Audio from Day 3 Church. If you have any questions about God, faith, or our church, email us at info at dayfreechurch.com. And for more information, find us on the web at dayfreechurch.com.